welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, November 9th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Schaefer. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, debugging app cache and standalone web apps on iOS, multi-AZ deployment with Amazon RDS, and the inevitable invasion of 7-inch tablets this holiday season. That was tough to say. touch that dial the niche podcast is next hello Late working and I'm I'm coming off a uh, a caffeine crash and cold meds. There's nothing like a caffeine headache. Oof. Yeah, and throw in a lot of sinus pressure with it. Ugh. God, I'm surprised you're even speaking. <laughs> I feel like my yeah, like, like my head just feels like it's about three times as dense as it should be. <laughs> well, hopefully it's all smarts. Yeah. <laughs> be nice yeah so for our dear listener <laughs> for our dear listener if you're not in the u.s it was a big election yesterday in the u.s and uh it's worth it's was so funny we took uh cooper down to the polling place mm-hmm. and it was packed it was super busy and uh you know he's like we're telling him all the you know like trying to sort of explain what's going on and you know he's like uh, right. two and a half and he's kind of trying to he's sort of remembering some of the words but he doesn't obviously he doesn't get it right he's telling all the people in line we're voting <laughs> you know <laughs> so then i uh you know then they uh they go out and i go to work and i get back in the house cooper's running around like a wild indian like usual and uh i can't remember what made him say it but he's he's running around he's going Civic duty, civic duty. But he's saying duty like diaper duty. Yeah. <laughs> it was way nice. funny. Yeah, I was he's just like a million of like two year olds are hilarious, man. Yeah. Always got something funny to say. It's funny. Funny. No, I am. Um, I don't actually have to get out and go down to polling place and what have you and this is where i i pull the legally blind card and, and do all my voting from my house nice <laughs> so. yeah did you notice in the uh in the speech last night obama alluded to the fact that there he wants to change the uh the long lines fi- issue yeah it's like we need to fix that <laughs> yeah which can only mean one thing online online voting please it does scare me a little bit because I know how online stuff works. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, um, you know, I just hope they do it right and not, you know, you must have Internet Explorer <laughs> to, to vote kind of thing. Yeah, the Obama administration has been yeah. pretty cutting edge with technology, I have to say. Yeah, they have been. They've been good. So. All these be... all these open government APIs. Yeah, it's that's something else. Like the day one of the... Uh, there was a, a funny little thread going around when uh, when Obama first took office, the uh, robots.txt file for the Bush White House, and then, you know, AB with the robots.txt file for yeah. Obama White House. It was like, it was like you know, thousands of entries during the Bush White House, and there were none. It was like three <laughs> on the Obama White House. It was pretty funny. <clears throat> robots.txt being... The things we don't want Google to look at. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah, I remember seeing that, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Wow, so you want to talk about building apps that run everywhere? <laughs> um, I kind of just want to take ibuprofen to go back to bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess we should. Yeah. So, anyway, we have a couple of bug reports. 
Yeah, that you said uh, you said you had a little one. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's a so much a bug as just a just an odd little thing. Mm. Um, if you remember last week, I was saying I was having a lot of problems with uh, my computer, and I was just going to reformat and, and reinstall everything and set up my dev environment again, and and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I might not have mentioned it in the podcast, but I know we talked about it. Yeah, I think you did. But, well, you know, I'm I'm lazy. And I don't really want to redo the whole computer. Right. So I thought, you know, I've been using Vagrant for a couple of small things and it's been working fine. Why don't I just set up like a generic Vagrant box and, you know, set the uh, the default shared folder to my, you know, my, my document root on my Mac and, and just, you know, I'll just use Vagrant for everything for now. What's Vagrant? Um, Vagrant is... Uh, Vagrant's are, well, it's a, it's a Ruby app that, that actually uses, um, VirtualBox to, to, um, set up and run, uh, virtual development environments. Hmm. That's, it rings a bell. I think you've told, you've mentioned it to me before, but I've never used it. Yeah. Yeah. I've used it quite a bit for, you know, using it when I need to, um, oh, to do development or testing for things that I don't. You know that I don't have set up on my on my iMac and don't really want to install on my iMac. Right. You just create a create a virtual machine and yeah, it's nice because you can match the production environment exactly without having to mess with you know your local setup. Right. Cool. So so yeah, I thought yeah I'll just do that and mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you laugh like you know something's gonna go wrong. Yeah, it's like the old reg- the the regular expressions joke. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you have a problem and you think, I know, I can solve this with regular expressions. And then you have then two you problems. you have two problems. <laughs> yes. And, uh, yeah, so so I got that all set up. And, I mean, I've, I've done it like a, a dozen times. And it's never been a problem. Do you usually do it for setting up like a, like a web server environment to do that you would deploy to? Or is it more like, do you, you actually use it for setting up? development environments yeah yeah i actually use vagrant for setting up development environments on my local machine i've done it like a dozen times and but this one i was gonna the um the shared folder that i was gonna mount was i guess a a little bit higher higher up i guess i should say it's a you know it was it was a folder inside my home directory versus a folder inside a folder inside a folder in my home directory Mm. yeah (laughs) and um so yeah, I got got the uh, the Vagrant virtual machine set up, installed Ubuntu Linux, um, set up a a LAMP stack on it, and set up um, set up a database on it, and um, uh, you know got my got my database and web server where they were both accessible from outside of the virtual machine, so I could I could load them up you know, from from my local OS, mm-hmm. and um, open it up, and it was all fine. Edited some files, saved them, and suddenly my my CSS and my images and my JavaScript all stopped working. Huh. And I you know I got to looking and I would you know I pulled them up in the browser and I would click on you know I view the source in the browser and click on the link to the CSS, and it would come up with, come up with a 403 error. Mm. And so you know then I would go back over to the the terminal that I had a I had an SSH session open to the. Uh, virtual machine. Yeah. And <laughs> and I would do a directory list and it would show, you know, until the right permissions on this file it was set to seven seven seven. Right. Okay, why is it getting four oh three? And you know, so you know, I I did the chmod command again just to make sure. List seven seven seven, okay, go to the browser, four oh three. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> and then finally I um I opened it up in Finder on my local machine, uh, went to Finder and checked the file permissions there, and it said, uh, owner, read-write, and then no access for anything else. Huh. I said, oh, even though, even though as far as VirtualBox was concerned, it was, you know, globally read-writable, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Finder preferences for the same file said no access for anything other than the owner, so I changed it to Finder, and... And then went back and reloaded, and everything worked fine on the web server. So, wow, that yeah. is so weird. Yeah, 
I, I keep, I'm like, I keep on thinking, you know, like I have a, a logical reason for it. And then I'm like, no, that's not it. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's like, well, this, you know, either, either vagrants, either, either the VirtualBox virtual machine that Ubuntu install is reporting file permissions incorrectly or, I don't know. It's weird because you'd think you'd think that if if access was denied on the local machine, then the virtual machine wouldn't be able to set those permissions. Right. Yeah. Like. Yeah. I keep going down dead ends in my mind of like what could right. possibly make sense there. Right. Is, what is that? I, I, is it that stupid DS store file on? Uh, is that what keeps track of the uh, this stuff on Mac? And it's just it's just not. Like, I, I don't know if it keeps track of permissions. I don't think it does permissions, but it's. It, I think it keeps track of like you know whether you're doing an icon view or a list view, and then like the sorting and placement of of items. Yeah, and I, I think it also has to do with spotlight, but I'm not sure. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it just seems like it's. Uh, how could the file have different permissions? Like, I could see if if it was for different users, but it was seven seven seven. So. Yeah. You know, if, if like yeah, the, and the oh yeah, that's that's a that's another thing is before I before I installed Vagrant, I had I had gone and I had set those on the iMac. I had set that folder to seven seven seven, so it somehow happened after setting up the uh, the VirtualBox share that the permissions got changed on the Mac. It's so weird. Yeah. Huh. So did it stick though once you changed it? Uh, once I once I changed it, yeah, it stuck. So I, I don't know. It must have just been something in the initial setup of the virtual machine. Huh? Yeah, that, maybe, that I mean, caused those. You know, caused caused the um the Mac to change the file permissions on that folder. But still, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I know. Doesn't explain why. Uh oh well well, it's easy to fix, but. Yeah, it was easy to fix, but it just made me go, "What?" Yeah. It's like parallel universe. Yeah. Well, that's a good one. But so once, and then have you, uh, so what do you like to like develop, doing all your development in like a full screen vagrant window? It, uh, no, actually, you know, since it's, since the folder is shared, but the, the directory is shared between both computers, you know, I just do, just do all my development normally just on sublime and using the, the tools on the iMac and you know, just, just like normal. Yeah. And then when I get to load it up in the browser, instead of just going to localhost, I go to you know, the Vagrant IP, the IP for the Vagrant box. Ah, interesting. Then, cool. You know, I have some, I have some bridge networking there so that I can do things like connect to the MySQL server running on the Vagrant box through um, SQL Pro. And mm. oh yeah, I don't, that reminds me. Just a quick side note that uh, I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast, but SQL Pro is awesome. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you'd you'd. Tipped me off to that uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think we were talking about uh, uh, MySQL Workbench and and uh, SQL Pro is so great. It's like so, it's like uh, so polished. Really nice. Uh, wow. So that's an interesting little uh, interesting little issue. Yeah. Huh. I'd, I'd call that uh, I'd call that a debugging exercise. Yeah. Not you know, bug hunting definitely. Right. So I had an interesting one this week. Again, I'm not maybe maybe it's more of it was a interesting challenge more than a bug, but it felt like a bug <laughs> because of all the debugging. But uh, I had a um, situation where um, uh, just a someone got in touch with me. They had a what amounted to a quick question, and uh, I didn't know the answer to it. So I was like, "Huh." Um, it and it was a, you know, it was something interesting to work on because uh, it fell into the category of stuff I do training on and stuff I'm writing the book about. So, it right. ha had to do with um, uh, full screen web apps on iOS. So this guy's got like a, a web app that is a product that he sells to people, and uh, um, part of the part of the the sort of pitch is that you can you know 
have your photos with you uh, offline and the app that he built is, you know, totally geared towards being a full screen web app. So like when you, you visit the, it's kind of hard to describe. I don't want to like, I guess it's not private business, but you know, I don't know. I didn't ask the guy if it was okay if I talked about it. So, right. Um, but basically what you do is, is, you know, you, you pay monthly and uh, you upload a bunch of photos and uh, you, you go to that URL and it's like formatted nicely. Your photos are formatted nicely in this gallery for, you, you know, for the phones and for tablets, size screens. But when you go there in a regular like mobile Safari browser, it gives you this huge like pop up that basically makes you install it to the home screens. You can't even interact with the app unless you install it on the home screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he said, the thing is with iOS 6, there's something different with the uh, app cache and um, the and things are suddenly broke. So we raised a couple of issues that I wasn't aware of, which is, you know, great. You know, I can add that to uh, the class and stuff. And I was like, all right, well, how hard could it be? I'll just <laughs> open my debugger and check it out. So what what came next was probably like eight hours of, of debugging. Um, yeah. In like, it's the worst too because you it deals with offline. So you have you you, you know I I made a little test file. I would open it uh, on the desktop Safari. I, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, desktop Chrome. I'd make sure that my JavaScript was working. I didn't have any regular bugs. And then uh, I was listening for maybe people don't know this, so this is good to know. Um, you can listen for on online and on offline events and attach handlers to those. Uh, and you can also check uh, window.online to see whether or not you're currently online, what your current status is. Is this is this a new discovery on your part? Because you didn't tell me this when we were trying to sort out the offline stuff for Avelio. Um, I didn't. No, you didn't. Well, the the other I'm, thing I'm was... I'm just wondering whether I should slap you or not. <laughs> uh, I I doubt that back then I knew about the events, but I, def- mm-hmm. I definitely knew about window.online. The thing is, I don't usually use it. Yeah, you didn't share. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but now normally, in this, in this situation, not to hedge too much, but in this situation, it's, it's fine. But in the, um, in the Avelio situation, I don't know if it's appropriate because it, the Avelio situation, it I don't normally use it because what I really want to know is not whether or not I'm online. What I really want to know is if I can reach an API. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a good point. Off, offline, online, doesn't matter. It's whether or not you can reach the API. Right. So I just, you know, you just look for Ajax errors. and. Okay, fine. <laughs> but it might have helped. I'll forgive you. <laughs> it, might, it certainly might have helped if you detect that you went offline. But so since this app is 100, is not talking to anything online, that was always fine. You know, it was just static photos. You're, he's basically just trying to give you an offline photo gallery that's not inside of your um, gallery app. Yeah. yeah, it's not inside. It's something shareable. Yeah. So, um, did that get me out of trouble? Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I'll, I'll forgive you. Okay. So, so, in order to test it, you have to constantly... I, I think there's a way to do this without actually turning your wireless adapter on and off, which takes, like, a while. So, this is my life for, like, eight hours. Uh, I'm doing development on a server because I also have to test from phones. And I'd uh, open up my FTP client. I'd edit the file. I would save it. I'd load it in Chrome browser on the desktop. I would make some changes to it. Uh, I'd say, okay, it all works. I'd switch to offline mode. And then I'd test it again. And it would, okay, everything's fine. It's working great. So uh-huh. so then I'd go over to the phone. And then I'd visit the same URL on the phone. And uh, it would it would load up in Safari just fine. I'd go offline. It would work fine in Safari on the phone offline. Then I'd go back online on the phone, save it to the home screen, launch it, make sure it loaded fine, close it, launch it again just to make sure that the app cache finished downloading. Mm -hmm. Then I'd go into settings again, go offline again in in the phone. Then I'd load the full screen web app and it wouldn't work. Hmm. And I'd be like, Ugh. so then yeah. I go back to the desktop and I'd, uh, I, you know, I've had my text files are still open. I'd make some changes I'd save and it wouldn't like, it would just hang. 
because I was still offline. <laughs> Turn my Wi-Fi back oh, yeah. on. Wait 10 seconds. See if I corrupted the file or where it was in the trans. It was like, like eight hours of that. Yeah, I, I spent many hours the other night working on a very slow VPN so I can relate to this pain. Yes, yes. It felt like it's a very similar feeling. It's just like slogging through mud. Yeah. It's like turtle stampeding through peanut butter. <laughs> Yeah, so if that was painful to listen to, I, pro- I promise you it was 100 times worse to actually deal with. But so it, so to, at the end of the day, though, it turns out there are a whole bunch of differences between um, the way a, a it's technically it's called standalone mode on iOS. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, I should maybe back up because the dear listener might not even know what I'm talking about. There's a, uh, you can add a meta tag to the head of a, an HTML document. Uh, and it, I believe it's a WebKit um, full screen compatible or web app. Yeah, so web, web app, web web app, app enabler or something, yeah, like, something yeah. like that. And uh, yeah, add that in there. And what it does is when you save the page or the, when you kind of like bookmark the page to your home screen, next time you launch it, it's going to launch in full screen mode. So no, no navigation bar, no back and forward buttons in the footer bar. And it's great for single page applications because, you know, it looks like an app, you know, you get that real estate back. You don't have the browser Chrome in the way. Um, if you, it's in the toolbar. So if you double click to see the running apps, you see your icon for that app, even though it's really a web page. So it's got some advantages that way. Um, and it's kind of cool. Uh, but there are, there are a lot of differences. And so the, um, the one that really stunk was that, um, this client wanted to start adding videos into the gallery and uh, but only but he said it's okay you know if they're only available online I'll just tell customers that you know their videos are only available online because they're hosted on like either Vimeo or YouTube and the the customers are allowed to like upload links to these things and then the app just embeds them in the uh, right in the thing so obviously those yeah. can't run um, offline so I was like, all right, fine. I'll just uh, I'll just make the you know put a placeholder image there when they're offline and and uh, and uh, actually show the video when they're online. Shouldn't be that hard. Yeah, like grab the thumbnail. Yeah. So I set it up where um, the the way that uh, it was Vimeo in particular. It was the one that we had to get working, and uh, the way that they do their embed code. And in fact, YouTube's new embed code is an iframe. So you know you get this iframe and you put it in the thing i had i had the whole thing working without the videos like a charm mm-hmm. so then i throw in the iframes and i'm like all right i want this to uh i listen for the the onload event of the page i check for um online and, and then i start listening to online and offline mm-hmm. events and if the person's offline i was like all right if the person's offline i need to kind of like um deactivate i need to do something to you know to deal with the video. So first thing I was like, all right, I'll hide the iframes. I'll just go through hide, you know, use, they were using jQuery in the site. So I was like, all right, I'll use right. jQuery. And uh, I just go through and hide all the iframes, wicked easy with jQuery. And I will show um, these, these uh, placeholders that were also in the source HTML, but hidden by default. Mm-hmm. So that worked great everywhere, except for in full screen mode, mm. where it would do this. Makes no sense. Yeah. So <laughs> it would do this thing where, um, in full screen mode, it's it won't let you stay in the app if anything's not cached and you're offline. No, that that didn't come out right. If you're offline and you have a full screen web app, it, it is it wants to close. It it does not want to open if you've got any network requests hanging out there. Even though okay. even though app cache, you're supposed to be able to like put an asterisk in the network section and just you know and those just fail. Yeah. And it seemed like uh, it was working for some things, but iframes were really causing the problem. So, uh, you know, to make a long story longer, I uh, I said, all right, um, I can't. It, hiding it's not working, so maybe it's still requesting. Maybe you can remove them. Yeah, yeah, so maybe I'll just remove them. So the next thing I did was uh, I was like, all right, let me just set the source. I had jQuery go through and, and null out, you know, just put an empty string in the source for the iframe, and then I stored mm-hmm. it in a, you know, you know, just another attribute inside of the iframe. So I moved it over to data right. dash source, data or uh, not data URL, but uh, data attribute. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, that didn't work. It still would force me to close the app. So I was like, geez, maybe it's just by virtue of the fact that there's an iframe in the page. And even though the source is empty, it's still like, I don't care. I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to open. Yeah. Can you just like outright remove the iframe? Well, so what I did was, well, the problem was I, I needed to know where to put them back. Oh. Because they were all like in particular places that I you know, I wasn't sure. I was like, well, how am I going to leave placeholders? So I was like, all right, I'll just comment them all out. So I, I did a little regular expression action. <laughs> and uh, and I actually just up wrapped um, uh, comments around all the iframes. So they were like taken out of the DOM, essentially. Right. And yeah. that didn't work. <laughs> so I was like, God... So, f- so, so any any DOM manipulation that took place after the fact had no effect on the on the network calls. Exactly, and that and that's when the light bulb went on. I was like, I was I was so sure all along that one of these things would work. It never occurred to me to be like, it doesn't matter. It's like taking you know something's happening before I'm having a chance to get those iframes out of there. So I just flipped it around and said, let's just always assume we're offline, and only mm-hmm. yeah, and put in iframes if we're sure we're online. Yeah, and then that finally fixed it. So, so that if uh, if our dear listener is not familiar with uh, HTML5 defines spec for data attributes inside of HTML tags, so you can arbitrarily add like data dash foo data dash baz whatever uh, to your elements, and it'll still validate. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I just put in sorry this view you know paragraph tags that say like sorry this isn't viewable offline and then I put in all these data attributes for the th- stuff that I needed to create the iframes oh sort them as data attributes in the in the placeholder yep. and then when you're online you just go through and build the iframes from that right right cool yeah so and then when you go offline um, you know it reverse the process right so it was, uh, it, it, and it really, it sh- you know, air quotes, should have worked the other way, too. But uh, for some reason it wasn't. It was really, it was pretty weird, actually. Just to, f- to learn that there were, there are some significant differences between the way a, uh, a standalone web app and mobile Safari web apps work with regard to app cache and online offline. Okay. It's an interesting, interesting bug to, you know, it's kind of neat, mm. but at the same time, it's kind of, you know, like you, like you said, it, you know, it should have worked the other way and it was turning off Wi-Fi and turning on Wi-Fi. Yeah. I, I can see how that would have been. <laughs> and the, and the, the other thing is new in iOS 6, uh, full screen web apps don't store their data inside in the same way inside of the settings application. So like you can go mm. into settings on iOS and see how much data different websites are storing. Uh, if you scroll all the way down to Safari settings at the bottom, there's a <coughs> advanced, and then that, and there's like website data, and like app cache, for example, will be, will be in there. But when you uh, are when you have a full screen web app, they're in, as of iOS six, they're treating it like truly outside of Safari. But there's no, there's nowhere for you to look at the guts of what's going on anymore. So oh. so clearing it means deleting it off the home screen, as far as I can tell. Yeah. So, <clears throat> another they, they they separate it out from Safari, but then they don't give you that kind of you know, you can't go in and access it like you would a regular app to see the resource usage. Right. Yeah, it should show up like one of you know in the list of other apps farther down. Yeah. But, uh, it does not. So the the other thing that came up was um. Uh, you know, it was it being able to report back to the user. Um, so the, the thing that came up was, how, is there a way that we can report back to the user how much space they're taking up on the phone? Uh, because there's like a 50 megabyte hard limit uh, per, I think it's per origin, but I'm not 100% sure. So the the thing there is like, well, okay, um, how do you do that? And I was like, really, I was thinking like, geez, I guess I could, you know, send an Ajax request and get the get the uh, uh, manifest as text and parse through it and try and then I was like duh why don't I just put a JavaScript file on the server that says what's in the manifest <laughs> so um, since these are these are small folders and stuff they're mm-hmm. like a small little um, 
I mean, they're, they can get kind of large file size wise because it's images, but right. there's not millions of them. So I just put a, a dynamic manifest in there. So like manifest.php and it loops through the, um, uh, loops through all the directories recursively and, you know, makes a manifest automatically. Yeah. And, uh, I set it up so that you could call it two different ways. You could call it with a, an output parameter and get the results as like a JSON P request. Mm -hmm. So you'd get back this JavaScript object that told you a list of all the file names, total file size, individual file size, and, you know, give you all this information. So you could, um, you could report to the user, create like, uh, you know, JavaScript interface around, um, that data. And since they're both generated by the same file, you could be pretty confident that it was accurate. Yeah. That's a, that's a good idea. I, uh, I thought it was pretty cool. I had I had some problems with. I think in production, what I would do is I would use that file to generate manifests dynamically, but I wouldn't actually use it as the manifest. Mm. So it would be more like a build thing. So it, when right. I was ready to deploy, I would I would make two static text documents because the problem with um, the problem with it was that I found that there were times when I didn't want to cache absolutely everything that was in the directory. Yeah, and you could certainly put exceptions in your logic if you wanted to, but it, it, something feels wrong about um, making PHP iterate over the directory structure recursively every time. Of, every time, yeah, yeah, I yeah. Don't... Actually, I, I I wrote a a PHP build script for generating an app cache not too long ago myself. So yeah, cool. So yeah, same kind of thing. Um, uh, the uh, the other benefit of of splitting it out into two text files is that you could have a distinct url for the javascript and not just a different query string for it put the javascript in your app cache exactly yeah so anyway that was a fun little wrestling project fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> for certain definitions of fun <laughs> now i mean you know the the outcome is is interesting and good and and you know you you learned something and came away with you know, something something pretty beneficial from it so mm. definitely worth the exercise i think yeah and it just, it's like, it also reinforces my uh, belief that in most cases, building standalone web apps is not worth the trouble. It's like, I, I it's a rare case when I'd be like, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. <laughs> but this guy, you know, that was this guy's whole product. So it makes sense for him. Right. right. But uh, in general, I mean, like, I don't like it, first of all, because it's iOS only. So you're going to do all of this. All of this stuff, all this extra debugging and all of this extra testing just for iOS. And even if you want to do that, it creates this weird situation for users because, you know, if they, you're obviously, it's obviously a web app of some kind. Mm -hmm. So there's a website version. And that means that, uh, you know, if somebody sends, you know, let's say like, like, uh, I don't know, Hatch, let's say Hatch was a full screen web app. And I sent a link to you, or there's links going into the into Hatch from on Twitter or whatever. Mm -hmm. If somebody clicks on it on their phone, they're gonna it's gonna take them to Mobile Safari. It's not gonna launch the the home screen app. So oh yeah yeah. Then you get it's the same problem with native apps. You get you end up in you end up in Hatch the website, and you log in and do all your stuff. And okay, great. And then you close that, and then you launch launch it again five minutes later from the the home screen and it's got a different set of cookies, a totally different app cache, totally different data and launches. You're not logged in. You're like, Hey, I just logged into this. What's the deal? Yeah. It's, it's like having two. it is like having two, two different it is apps two installed. Separate. Yeah. So assuming that you, you know, if you're not, if you don't think there's any reason anyone's ever going to share a link to your application, then it's probably not an issue, but how often yeah. does that happen? Yeah. So cool. <clears throat> well, uh, I think we can move on from wrestling to uh, creative activity. Creative activities? Yeah. So you, you mentioned, I don't know what this is about, but you mentioned that you're doing your first uh, big bootstrap app. Oh, yeah. And, and well, it's not really a big bootstrap app. It's kind of a kind of a small bootstrap app, but it's a bootstrap app nonetheless. It's the, you know, the first thing you know full production thing i've done with bootstrap other than just just playing around with it here and there mm. and it's you know it's for a personal project and 
and um yeah so <laughs> what do you think so far um i like it and i i like it better now than i did the last time the the last time i messed with it and i don't know if that's because of the improvements to bootstrap or if it's just that i've had more experience doing responsive design hmm. okay and you know, it still feels like there are some instances where the you know the market gets a little uh you know you get kind of kind of kind of div happy <laughs> yeah and is it is it is it that you have to write it that way or does it generate those divs yeah well to no to use the grid system it gets kind of gets kind of div happy to use the grid system mm. but uh, you know it's it's not bad and not as and not as bad as i remember it being and it, um yeah, so I, I, like I said, I don't know. It it could just be that I'm that I'm more used to doing responsive design now. And you know, if you if you do a, a design that's responsive, I think you're in a lot of cases you're going to end up having a little more markup anyway, just just because there are you know some some concessions that have to be made in terms of you know, when to resize things, and and you need something there right to resize. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah, it could just be that I'm a little a little more used to doing that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and being able being able to customize your Bootstrap downloads so that you can you know you only get the components you need helps a lot too. Yeah, that's. I, I don't know if that was in the original. I don't think so. I I, I remember that that was announced. I, I see. My recollection is that that was came after the fact around two point Yeah, yeah. I feel like there may have been something in the original, but it was just a matter of. You know, including files or not including files, it wasn't. You know, you can go to the website and and, and click around on this little interface and build a custom download. Mm. I don't know, but um, yeah, I feel like before, if you wanted to do it, you had to download the source and then and then compile the minified versions yourself. Whereas now, you can just go to the website and check the items you want and download it all in one package. Mm-hmm. So, so being able, yeah, being able to do that helped a lot in terms of. Some of the things I didn't like about Bootstrap, which was, you know, that for a lot of things it just seemed, you know, like there was too much. Like, why do I need to load all this stuff that I'm not going to use? Right. Well, that's cool. I mean, it's obviously super popular. When it first came out, it was very desktop centric, mm-hmm. and I so I kind of was like, I I think I think we talked about it on the podcast. I went to use it for something, and I, and immediately was like, oh, it's it like doesn't it's not respond it like looks like junk on uh uh phones so yeah but i i do remember seeing an announcement that they they uh added basically added mobile support if you will yeah it seems pretty easy to use it to generate responsive layouts that's good so i'm um, you know it gets my first experience with bootstrap 2 plus Mm-hmm. And I like, you know, it's it's a big improvement over the original Bootstrap. So if you were like me and had dismissed Bootstrap after its original release, you know, check it out again. <laughs> cool. Maybe I will. So you you actually mentioned something I wanted to touch on the the uh, divitis and and when you're doing responsive web design. Um, yeah. One of the tricky parts with responsive web design is in a in its purest sense where you're just using like, uh, you know, CSS basically in media queries, um, is that you can't mess with the source order. And if you want to really rearrange the furniture significantly between mobile and desktop sizes, uh, it means you have to kind of, like you said, put in both, you have to put in all the markup for both and then hide and show appropriately in the CSS. Yeah, I've had to do that on a couple of sites. Yeah, and and um, Luke Rabluski wrote a killer post on this that I'll you know we'll link to in the show notes about you know he basically says um, you know some sometimes you're traveling and you you know you're going abroad and you don't know where you're going so you pack a bag with like you know a lot of layers and a light jacket and then maybe a uh, a sweatshirt and you know you've got all these things because yeah. you don't know what's going to happen. And you, so you've got this backpack full of stuff and, you know, and that's about being able to adapt to your environment and it's super useful. Yeah. And then he so says, you get there and you use like two shirts. Right. Yeah. I finally gave in and stopped packing sneakers when I go on trips. I'm like, I'm probably, I'm going to make time to go to the gym at the hotel. Never no, do. You're not. No, you're not. So 
uh, and then the other thing is uh, optimization. So you know, if you if you just streamline and streamline and streamline and streamline and, and cut something down to the very very core essence, that's extremely useful too. Mm-hmm. And and there are sort of it's sort of um, you know it's like a Jeep versus a Formula One racer. You know, there's 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 a place for both things, and responsive web de- design is way in the adaptive side of the fence, where you're packing stuff in your bag that you may or may not use, but you're ready for every, anything. Yeah. You know, so like Navy SEAL style, and and it was, it's funny because that when I read that, it it was the first time it crystallized that argument for me because that's the fight. Everybody, people who are really into optimization hate responsive web design. And vice versa. It's like, because optimization makes it really brittle. Like, you, oh. it makes you more and more, makes you less and less adaptable. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, he's just like everything with this stuff. It's a balance. But uh, um, when he wrote that up, I was like, oh, I, I, didn't, I never saw the two things as a continuum. You know, between op- yeah. optimization on one end and adaptability on the other end. So I thought that was really interesting. And that's, you know, that's 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 what that extra markup is. That's that uh, yeah. pair of sneakers you're not going to wear. Yeah. Yeah, so. and it's, yeah, I, I see both sides. I certainly see the benefit to having it in there. And I like having the adaptability. But then there's this part of me that goes, oh, that's messy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Used to be this thing in Flex. Uh, which had a, a markup style XML called MXML that uh, allowed you to set states. That mm-hmm. was it was really good. Uh, HTML will never get there, but uh, it was really cool, and it it allowed you to kind of like pack. Here comes Monster back. Yeah, I heard. It allowed you to package up, um, basically lay out widgets, almost like mustache templates allow you to do. You could mm-hmm. like have these have these like you know chunks of markup down you know in this out in the corner of your page you you know hidden in your basically organized into your code someplace that you only pulled it out if you needed it because it was definitely not a default state and uh that's sort of that's kind of like the feel the the, that's kind of i feel like would be something cool for html but it was super advanced and it was it was a little it, it was a little tricky in MXML, but it would yeah. be nice if you could designate an element as like a template, you know, or like yeah. I mean, I guess you can do it a little bit with JavaScript, right? Without exactly totally, right. but I but mean, without no, JavaScript, right? I mean, you can you can do it totally do it with JavaScript, but, but yeah, some some sort of native HTML support would would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't hold my breath for that. No, but, uh, no. it would be cool. Yeah, and that <clears throat> that uh, and since it doesn't, since HTML doesn't have it natively and probably won't, then that's where you end up with something like Sencha Touch, which has zero HTML in it, and mm-hmm. absolutely everything is defined in JavaScript and created on the fly, which is like the 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 kind of far extreme on the other side of the fence, where yeah. the, you know it's like a, a head with an include of Sencha Touch dot JS and a uh, empty body tag yeah <laughs> so wow so cool um i'd be looking forward to seeing the bootstrap app when it's ready yes yes um hopefully um i'll get the chance to finish it up next weekend oh, cool it's kind of just a little weekend project i'm working on so hmm. Excellent. hoping hoping in a week or two to get it done great well we could move on to uh uh, something another piece of client work this week uh, forced us to look into um, basically setting up live failover for mm-hmm. Amazon uh, RDS. What does that What does that yes. stand for? I'm blanking on what that stands for. RDS Rela- Relational Data Store. Ah, gotcha. And yeah, so that Amazon outage I think it was a couple weeks ago now. Um, you know, the question came up. Well, you know, could could we, you know, how would we recover from backup? How, you know, is there something better that we can do? What are our options? How much would it cost and all that stuff? So we've been researching that a little bit. And, 
was, I think, to neither of our surprise, Amazon basically has it dialed. You can yeah. pretty much check a box that says, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I want you to mirror my database in real time. Uh, and which multiple is, available designs. Uh, well, yes, but yeah. not multiple regions. No, sadly. Yes, so that's the that's the downer about it. So there's this Amazon has this. Um, uh, it's called multi AZ availability zones, mm-hmm. and when you set up a uh, an RDS instance, it asks you if you want a single deploy. I think it is uh, where you know you basically just have one database, or you can do multi AZ deploy and have essentially a master slave MySQL setup that. Uh, you know, all the reads and writes and all the activity from your app are going to the main one. And if that fails, if that fails for any reason, and there's a list of, there's like a list of things that will cause it to fail and how long it takes for it to be, you know, down to be considered a failure and all this things you can set. Uh, and then it just switches over to the, the other one, which has been kept um, like up to date, like crazy up to date. Yeah. Uh, based on the real one, the initial one. And uh, it's, I mean, I've, I've looked into setting this up before and always been like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Because <laughs> you can, like, MySQL has this capability built into it, but it's, it's I remember it being very time-consuming and complicated. Uh, maybe I, I could be wrong, but and it, maybe it's different now, but it was, I remember being like, this is not worth the trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so Amazon makes it really easy. It's uh, it exactly doubles the price because now you've got two databases running, and there's some size limits. Sense. Yeah, it does totally make sense. So really, the only downsides of the multi AZ deployment are the um, are that it's same region, and even though they're physically distinct buildings on different power supply in different areas of the region, they're still like all. Like if in... that region gets knocked out, you're yeah. Right. If a giant hurricane comes through. <laughs> right. Um, but they did say that when, uh, in that last outage, people who had multi ADZ deployments, there are only 2% of them actually went down, uh, yeah. as opposed to like 100% of this single deployments. So since we're mirroring our, um, our app server, it makes sense to mirror the database server at least, I, you know, I don't know, ultimately, I don't know, um, if it'll be better. So here's the thing. The reason, the reason, as I read up on this, the reason why it's not uh, regional, it's not set up mm-hmm. that you can back up regionally, is that would add too much latency to the, the application. Oh, in terms of syncing between the databases. Right, because the the um, data centers that are in a particular AZ are they must have like incredibly fast networks between them, mm-hmm. so that uh, so that they can they can have an incredibly low latency. They said it does add some. It does add some delay to the um, each transaction, mm-hmm. but it's very very small. And uh, uh, if it was across regions, I presumably it wouldn't be be able to set up like that. It'd be yeah. a longer delay, which wouldn't be. That would be a definite no sell. Yeah, because I mean, not only do you have to go to the remote server, you have to get a response from the remote server that says you know success or fail. Right. Yeah, and if you're not doing that, if you're just like doing best effort, then you you know that would be a disaster. You couldn't. Yeah, it's it's kind of useless. Right, there's no point. So, <clears throat> you know, uh, it's probably it's probably as good as you're going to get. I don't know if, if mm-hmm. we looked around at other providers what the other options are, but um, or you know just setting it up ourselves. I have a feeling we'd find if we set up another you know MySQL server in another region and just set it up manually we'd be like oh crap it's too slow. Yeah, yeah, I think we would. Yeah. So the uh the, the other thing that you can have is called a read replica and this is mm-hmm. a true MySQL master slave at least it sounds like it to me where you can have a um uh you it's sort of for two different things. You can, if you have a very very demanding application for reading so like you've got tons and tons of reads and not that many writes like say a blog is a classic example yeah a really popular blog has like millions of readers and maybe some people are commenting but you're not doing a ton of writes so you can set up these read replicas that um, all the writes go to one machine and then uh, reads get distributed across a whole bunch of machines that are you know basically backup copies of the main one yeah Uh, I don't and I don't think I don't think we need that. We're we're not really having that kind of a 
No, if if anything, our app, our app has probably almost as many writes as it does reads. Yeah, it's very two directional. So yeah, I think um, so you know to actually meet with the client and talk about it. But I think multi AZ is it's probably a good yeah good place to start. And even though it's doubling the cost, we're still talking about like it's like one hundred and fifty bucks or something. Yeah, you know. So yeah, if your if your data is if your data is important enough to you to need to back it up, it's probably important enough to you to pay the the cost because it's not not a huge expense. Right. So I mean, it's since there there just was an outage, it's really easy to say, okay, how much did the outage cost? Mm-hmm. And say like, all right, well, if it was ten thousand dollars, this is no brainer. If it was a hundred dollars, then it's probably not yeah. worth it. Yeah. So that's the conversation there. Yeah, and you are you are you going to talk to them next week? Uh sort of. I am and actually I'm glad you asked that because next week I'm going to be traveling. I'm not sure what to do about the podcast schedule. So, I'm going to um Croatia on Saturday. Hmm. Well, I'm leaving on Saturday and getting there Sunday. It's a pretty pretty long flight. Yeah. And uh Yeah, going to be in Zagreb with the Infinum guys. Yeah, but I think uh, I think it's uh, just Dan from the client. I don't think okay. uh, yeah. I don't think it's everyone. He had mentioned it this morning. Mm. Uh, it's supposed to be really nice. Uh, Croatia is like it's it's uh, directly east of like northern Italy, mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be like old Europe, like the, oh nice, the old, take lots of pictures. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, we're going to be with uh, a bunch of locals, so I'm sure we'll see all yeah. the best parts. But I'm not getting back until, um, I'm not getting back, I think I get back like 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday. Mm. So perhaps we can record on Thursday next week. Yeah, if you, you may just come home and crash. Well, that's the thing, I, I might yeah. be, it's like 24 hours traveling. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're so like. So is this, this your first time going to Croatia? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yep. Never been. I know you've. I know you've been over there for for this client to in London a couple of times. Yep, and that's always fun. The uh, well, sometimes <laughs> sometimes it's not that fun. If you want sometimes to get online, it's, it's not fun. If you want to download a PDF file, it's going to be expensive. Yeah, yeah, but London's fun to see. Um, yeah, no, I've been to I've been to Italy before. I've never been to Croatia, and I'm actually uh, I've got layovers in Zurich and Paris. I've never been to either of mm. those. So I probably won't see anything but the airport, but I can yeah, say still, I've been. Yeah, so you've been there. Right. You can buy a little toy Eiffel Tower for Cooper. Yeah. So, wow. So I think that's all I've got for this week. I don't know, do you have any other... Uh, any other uh, no, I mean, I wrote a little jQuery topics. plugin, but... I don't oh, right. It's mentioning. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's... Uh, I guess we're we're getting pretty webby, web development web developy but it's uh it's a cool little cool little solution might as well let the dear listener in on it yeah it um what it does it's for for uploading multiple files and i i can't take credit for the original idea i've seen other implementations like this before but we were you know and, and i was trying to use one of them but i was running into some some issues in internet explorer so i ended up just rewriting the whole thing and and building a building a plugin myself from scratch that did the same thing. Um, basically, it lets you when you're laying out a form, it lets you insert a like a file input for uploading a file. And but then, at least from the user perspective, you get to re- reuse that input to you know, to select multiple files for uploading. Hmm. Yeah, it's cool. It's like a cool little trick, you know. And you get like uh, you get a little checkbox with the file name. Yeah, like a checkbox list below it. Right, kind of like uh, Gmail attachments. Mm-hmm. But no Flash plugin, just JavaScript. Yeah, so basically what it does is uh, you select your file and then it kind of just it just moves that file element out of, out of the you know out of the viewport so you can't see it anymore. And then it no, it just inserts another one in its place because the the amount of manipulation you can do on file inputs 
with JavaScript and have everything still work is uh, it's actually pretty limited for security reasons. Right. And, yeah. Like you can't even set display none on it. If you set display none on the file element, then you know it it won't submit. Exactly. Yeah, I was just gonna say you can't hide them. Yeah, you can't hide them. You can't manipulate the the value. Yep. So, but you can you can move it out of the way. Right. So you know, I just I set the margins to like negative nine thousand, <laughs> and then you know, and then just um, <coughs> insert another input in its place. Cool. And the funny thing is, I I ran into a little a little um, user experience problem with it yesterday. I was playing around with it and noticed, um, you know, because you select a file like like the the file select dialog box opens in your browser and you click the file and then it. You know, it just adds it to another list, and then you get an empty file dialog box there. So, so it looks like the file dialog box itself never populates uh-huh. because it was, you know, hiding it because it was moving out of the way and inserting another one so fast that it just, it lo- you know, you would you would get the list saying that this file is selected, but it looked like the file dialog box never populated, and it just felt kind of weird to me. So right. I just I added a tiny delay. So you actually see the file, your um, path show up in the file dialog box, you know, the file input box. And right. then then it gets moved. Right. Cool. It just makes it, makes it feel more, you know, more like that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't like, know, it makes, makes it feel more, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's like, did, yeah. did it work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, you could get fancy and like animate it out of view. But I guess you don't want to animate it out of view. No, you just want to. Can Can you mess with the opacity? Yeah, you can. I see. And I I tried that at first because I was I was doing and like I was lowering the opacity and absolutely positioning it over a styled button so mm-hmm. that I could just have a nicer looking input. Right. And I know there's solutions for doing this that do basically the same thing, but I was getting uh, I was having problems making it work in Internet Explorer eight. And for what I needed, actually, I didn't mind just having like a, a standard file input box there. So, you know, I just I took that out and ended up not worrying about that. Yeah, yeah, and it's different on you know Safari. I think Safari is different than others. Mm-hmm. Desktop Safari, and it is a security thing because you know you're about to upload a file off of somebody's hard drive. So, yeah, you don't really want somebody messing around with it too much. And that also explains why you can't have JavaScript programmatically like setting you know, the value. Yeah, yeah, like look for a you know in the home directory, look for ssh slash. Yeah, id rsa. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, that would be bad. Well, that's cool. And it works on if you test it on like uh, phones and stuff. Uh, yeah, I tested it in mobile Safari, and it works fine. Cool, because file uploads are a new thing, and. Uh, mm-hmm. On uh, iOS. Yeah, I haven't tested it on, on my Android tablet yet, but yeah. I, I suspect it'll work. Yeah, Android phones have allowed, I don't know when it happened, but they've allowed file uploads for a little while. So mm-hmm. uh, presumably it will work the same. So that's cool. So that's kind of like, that's that's pretty close to our theme. Works on phones, desktops, <laughs> tablets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very cool. You've got quite a little testing uh, testing gallery going there now. On uh, on which? All your uh, that picture you sent of all the all of your devices. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm starting to catch up with you. Yeah. I'm I'm losing steam. I I don't care anymore about like yeah. the iPad Mini. I couldn't care less really. It's like yeah, no, I'm, I have no interest in getting an iPad Mini. Yeah. I was I was thinking about it a few days ago because you know I was thinking about getting one for Kira for Christmas, but then I was like, no, you know, she has access to two iPads anytime she wants them, and, and so you know, yeah, I don't need a third. Yeah, <coughs> yeah, it's it's getting to the point where, I mean, the thing about it is, <clears throat> um, we're getting to the point where we're getting this smooth continuum of screen sizes from, you know, really, really small, say, let's just say phone is the smallest, even though I've got smaller stuff here. The mm-hmm. Phone's the smallest popular one. So you basically got like, uh, you know, three inch diagonal screen up to five, you know, for like a Galaxy Note. And then 
you know, you jump right to seven and up to eight and then nine and 10, and then you're right around laptop size. And then, so it's like, it's here this Christmas, this Christmas in the U S there are going to be, you know, I don't, I'm not even going to guess at a percentage, but a significant percentage of U S households are going to have a smooth continuum of screen sizes (laughs) between, you know, their kids and, and, uh, you know, everybody's got phones and you know, the smartphone numbers are just going up and up and up, you know, for people who are like, finally their, their dumb phones, finally dead. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I saw the article in, uh, on CNN money today, I think I'll actually post it in the show notes where they do, uh, just a very end user perspective on, um, on, uh, uh, what is it? The Kindle fire HD, the iPad mini and the, uh, Nexus seven. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, Apple, obviously they're trying to get it out for the holiday season, or maybe there's some engineering challenge that, uh, that, you know, they can't get the battery life where they want it with a retina mini, Mm -hmm. but, but you know, in three months, there's going to be a retina iPad mini. Yeah, probably. But, uh, the thing is this article was just very end usery and it was clearly like, you know, people are are trying to decide what to buy for Christmas or for the holidays. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you get 199 for for a Nexus Seven, and it really next the 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 reviewer was like, it depends on what you're going to use it for. Uh, if you want to use it for reading, then Galaxy or the Nexus Seven is the clear winner because the yeah. screen is so much better for you know for reading, and you get the the full Google Play Store. Where uh, if you're mostly going to be using apps, then you're probably better off with the Mini because you get more selection of apps. Mm-hmm. But and he didn't he was not a fan of the the kindle fire hd because he said it felt like a giant funnel to a checkout screen (laughs) yeah yeah amazon makes it so easy to buy spend money on amazon they they do a really good job of that yep so you know and the other benefit of a of a using getting a kindle fire is that you can um you, you know videos that you buy from amazon you can store for for offline use uh, mm-hmm. all other devices you have to stream them yeah so if you want to basically if you want to be on a plane with a movie and you gotta you gotta have a kindle i don't know i've downloaded i've downloaded tv shows to the ipad to the ipad yeah but yeah. Not, from, not from amazon oh no not from amazon no right right yeah but um well cause, so here's the thing if you're an amazon prime member you get a ton of free movies but you yeah. can't download them to anything right. unless you have a kindle fire oh, okay i see yeah yeah, everything else, everything else streams the Amazon content. Mm-hmm. Kindle will download it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but no, of, of all the tablets I have, um, the Nexus Seven is still my favorite. Yeah, that's that seems to be the winner, really. I mean, that's what this guy said. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I'm Kelly Shaver, and we hope you join us again next week for the Mitch Podcast. See you later.